We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. The design of any building is an act of looking into the future. The look of our cities and neighbourhoods evolve with every building that architects design. Throughout history, many architects have had aspirations for what our cities should look like. Some designs have shown buildings interconnected with nature, others are dystopic visions of cities run by machines without any considerations for people. Whether architects are mainly concerned with climate change, emerging technologies, or changes in the social structure of work, there are many things that are going to change the fabric of cities in the future. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around Australia what our cities and towns will look like in 2050. As we've just started 2020, 2050 is only 30 years away. It seems like it's a lot of time, but when it comes to architecture, it's not. Some major projects take many years to design and build, like the Sydney Opera House, which took 14 years to build. With that in mind, it seems that only a handful of changes can take place in a whole city over this time. Justin Carrier and Stephen Posmus discuss how much the city can change over 30 years and what this has meant for their hometown of Perth. I think if we, if we just continue on the same trajectory that Perth operates on, and that is we're not really going to have a collective intervention, we're just going to let things kind of roll on, then <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure. But if we're talking about aspiration of, of how we would like things to, to develop, mm. I think goes back to your question about travelling and, and mm. going overseas, I think it would be really good to get inputs from people who, who have those skills mm. and who are able to collectively draw on different levels of expertise mm-hmm. as an urban team to develop Perth mm. onward. And we seem to be a divert, sort of reverted to a very parochial attitude in, mm. per, in Perth. I'm not sure why, but I, I think it would be really good to get some really good expertise into developing things mm. in Perth. Well, yeah, I mean, the interesting question because I think back to when I was studying and when we were studying, and that was 1990, now it's 2020, and that's, that's 30 years. And you could sit on top of Kings Park and, and look down on the, the CBD. And, and look, it has changed a fair bit, but not what you'd expect after 30 years of development. If I was sitting as, as a you know, 20 year old back then and now as a you know, 44 year old, whatever, I would have thought there'd be a lot more change than there is. And so you look for another 30 years, I think, well, how much is going to change? You know, then, yeah, sure, there might be some more tall buildings and stuff, and you know, there might be more development. But you know, I don't know. Will there be more green space? You know, that's, that 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 opens up. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by the question. I'd well, I can. How things are changing now is we're reverting back to <coughs> the village, mm. and shopping centres become the village, mm-hmm. and and you can see that's where the futurists have latched onto. And that will be the model probably for the next 20 years. Yeah, I mean, with things like Design WA, the new planning code that's come out for apartments and, and high-density living, I think I think it's a real positive thing and understanding that more outcome-based and not just ticking boxes. And I think that's a good thing because it allows sort of designers and decision-makers to think outside the box. So that's kind of exciting. You know, it's like, well, 
it doesn't have to be a building that looks like this or that, that has this envelope it, you know you can think about different different ways to sort of true you know true but i think it's very local though it's still within the the confines of a site boundary yeah true and if we want to get some really consolidated landscape or consolidated mm. strategies i think we need to really move beyond the local mm. and we're in that kind of difficult position where where perth is very fractured <coughs> into local councils i'm not necessarily advocating for a super council but you can mm. see why mm. you know things like the midland redevelopment authority epra the mra as kind of a epra, um, epra that's a yeah, like an like an umbrella type organisation to try and get some a consolidated mm. approach, because if you look at it and you think you know streets and street verges, a great infrastructure zone to develop, mm. and it just doesn't happen. You know, there's no vision for it. You know, <coughs> our freeways and things again, another opportunity to have a green infrastructure network. Mm. This just doesn't happen. There's no vision because mm. it's so fractured into local municipalities mm. and different organisations. So I think f- for there to be some kind of momentum and, and something, a, a big improvement, then I think there mm. needs to be some serious, you know, team teamwork as a big, big kind of picture. Probably a better transport infrastructure. Yep. You know, I think that's a key thing to allow sort of, you know, the, the city to mature and in a meaningful way without being sort of car reliant you know um so yeah i think that's really important but yeah i don't know i don't know about these you know a lot of the, the super high rise well it's not super high rise for perth it's like 20 stories or something but but um whether there'll be a lot of those or whether it's going to be more sort of you know infill sort of four or five stories and people will start to pick those up it's very sort of um a very european way of sort of living i think you know sort of the, the central continents, a lot of. What was the new urbanism <coughs> of 1980? Leon Crea advocates for a four-level height <coughs> as being the ideal. Yeah. yeah. And do you know if you look at Instagram or Facebook that typically, statistically, you only have 96 real friends. I probably have about four, but anyway. It still comes down. It still comes down to the village. Yeah. You know, it yeah. is about yeah. the village. Not that I'm yeah, yeah. advocating a return to medievalism, but but no, still I agree. Yeah, local yeah. communities and how mm, they mm. stitch together, and if mm. we have the bureaucratic capacities to to deal with that. Mm. 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 I, mean, I just I just think back to 1990. You know, and I think you know not not that much has changed. Do you know what I mean? In the way the city operates, in the CBD and the sprawling suburbs. You know? I mean, you, you, you know, yeah, you know, the pockets of sort of you know, shopping centres which are drawing out from the CBD and things like that. And But there's still no, there's only a, a handful of like real sort of high streets in Perth, you know, Vic Park being the, probably the main one that, that reminds me of other high streets around like, you know, Melbourne, um, Sydney and that sort of thing. You know, Leaderville's just so small, you know, Leaderville, um, Mount Lawley, you know, and, and they're, and I think they've suffered because of, of being overly gentrified, you know, and whatever happened with our boom in post-2008 and people having too much money and, again, you know, this sort of overinflated sort of self-importance of, you know, wanting to pay so much for your pasta or whatever. But there are some to have, well, exist sort of these real sort of these high streets where, you know, you see all the families from, you know, different demographics coming out and... and you know, it's, it's almost like when you're in Spain and, and the, the kids are out at 10.30 at night in the squares and there are pockets starting to sort of become like that, you know, whether it's because there's more sort of migrant communities or, you know, I don't know. 
That was Justin Carrier and Stephen Posmus from Kappa, based in Perth. Regional areas in Australia develop much slower than our cities. But even though there's less people and money than in major cities, these places need to stay up to date with the rest of the country so they don't suffer from ineffective services and design. Sue Dugdale tells us what she hopes changes where her practice is based in Alice Springs because the needs in regional areas are very different to Australia's major cities. So in Alice Springs here, we, we do have lots of space, but that is not an excuse to sprawl out into that space. Land is still valuable. And more than that, I think to create sustainable neighbourhoods, we need to concentrate on being more dense and keeping walkable neighbourhoods and suburbs and places and using the land and, and resources more wisely. In terms of Australia in general and what I think the future might hold, there's a few things I think I hope for or can see. I think the single family homes on the quarter acre block have been trimmed down and trimmed down and trimmed down until now the setbacks on those blocks are only a metre from all sides and it is just complete madness not to make those into party walls. That space is just wasted space with no value whatsoever. In fact negative value party walls between townhouses are a much more environmental solution than single houses separated by two metres with a fence in the middle of it. So I'd like to see single family homes disappear in favour of other more dense models of living, perhaps starting with apartments and ending up who knows where as the models multiply and grow. I think in the future it'll be great to see materials with low embodied energy being valued and used more and prioritised over the very high end materials. So that would mean probably more perhaps stone and timber being used over things like aluminium and other more refined metals. I'd like to see that buildings that produce or host production of energy and food so that the huge mechanics of transporting things and reticulating services in large urban places is not needed or removed. It makes me think of the anecdote that I heard a long time ago that someone in England in the 19, oh sorry, the 1800s when London was a small city pointed out that the population of London could never grow beyond a million people because it would be buried in horse shit. Because obviously horses were the only form of transportation at the time. So who knows what the future holds. I think more things that I'd like to see in the future is buildings that have fully designed life cycles so that we not only design the building for the moment the architect hands it over to the client, but we know how it will be used and the resources that will need to keep it running for its life, whether that be 30 or 40 or 50 years, and then how does it all get recycled at the end of that time. An urban design concept of the tartan grid was one where you had a grid of streets and spaces that were a major grid, and then the, the fine lines in the tartan were the finer things that happened in that urban design. But it's expressing a kind of two-dimensional planning concept but I'd like to see a tartan grid in three dimensions. So if you can imagine a high-rise building where perhaps the external walls of the building that house whatever function inside are actually apartments and um, they're like a skin of apartments enclosing something else. So different ways of thinking about um, big buildings. And I think the future is inevitably going to include buildings that are more vertical and neighbourhoods that are more vertical. An example of this, I think, is Wohar's recent affordable housing towers in Singapore. And I think that the best park space available to 
I think not only the residents of the towers, but the public are the rooftops. And the rooftops of the towers are all connected with these amazing walkways. It looks totally sensational. So I'd love to visit. That was Sue Dugdale from Sue Dugdale & Associates, based in Alice Springs. Many architects believe that climate change is the biggest issue impacting architecture at the moment. As the construction industry is one of the biggest polluters in the world, architects are working towards designing buildings that reduce their impact both during construction and after. Jane Wetherill tells us what she thinks will become more common in the built environment and what buildings will either disappear or evolve with new technology. Well, let's hope it looks fabulous. Um, 2050 is actually not that far away, I feel. So when we say what, what will the landscape look like, essentially I imagine it will look relatively similar <laughs> to how it is now, but things will be denser. I think yeah, sustainability, there'll be more evidence of sustainability, renewable energy. We'll be relying more on public transport, so there'll be, that will be more dominant in our landscape. I really hope that people very quickly realise the importance of trees <laughs> and um, hang on to trees. I feel like that would be a nice thing to still see in 2050. It's quite interesting to think of the different building types that might disappear, like petrol stations um, with electric cars and so forth. And then you kind of think, you know, shopping centres, online shopping and, and public services like post offices and libraries, are, I guess, have the ability to disappear. Hopefully libraries hang in there. But then what about things like museums, planetariums, sporting arenas, things that you can plug in and experience as a VR remotely? That will be quite fascinating. That's clearly a bit further than 2050. <laughs> but I think what does need to happen is that the focus in moving to 2050 and beyond is in building things that are going to last, like infrastructure that's going to last, housing that's going to last, and we're a little bit throwaway, knee-jerk. So sustainability from that point that as things get bigger, denser, you know, things need to remain and, and provide good backbones. I think that then falls back on government a little bit. At the moment, we're so developer-driven that the private market is looking for profit and doesn't necessarily want to invest in these long-term visions, but it's an important aspect of how we move forward. That was Jane Wetherill from With Architects, based in Perth. As buildings are meant to last for a very long time, a lot of what already exists will probably still be around in 2050. Damien Madigan tells us how cities may look the same in the future, but the function of our buildings will shift with the way people live and work. My short answer is, it will be similar but different. I think there are certain things we can predict, such as mixed-use apartment development with you know retail on ground floor and apartments above the the, the the retail is largely sitting empty or much of it mm -hmm. is online shopping is taken away from retail mm -hmm. uh, in pretty huge numbers so i think that mixed use model is probably limited in mm -hmm. its days mm -hmm. 
We know that shopping is changing completely from the on online retailing thing to, to you know food vans taking away from bricks and mortar food providers. Yep. So I think we'll definitely see sh uh, changes there, shifts that are driven by retail economies and, and commercial economies. I think we'll see more co-working spaces, more mm -hmm. flexible working spaces, things that we can relatively easily predict as big corporations um, downsize and people's working relationships change and, and working arrangements change. Going back to this idea of having kids and, and hearing the statistics that, that someone of my children's generation will probably have seven different careers over 11 yeah. different jobs or something. If that mm -hmm. comes to fruition, you know, you can only begin to imagine what the workplace environment might be when people are shifting chairs so much. Mm -hmm. But, and this is where the optimist in me comes out, <laughs> I think there are enough well-intentioned people, I was going to say good people, it's got nothing to do with people, whether people are good or not, people with enough interest in topics mm -hmm. of need and with enough uh, intelligence working in the field and we can always do with more but, but people are chipping away in pretty large chunks that that hopefully we will see more environmentally sustainable mm -hmm. design and construction mm -hmm. it, uh, it, as a matter of course hopefully better socially sustainable communities mm -hmm. because we understand social isolation in all its varied forms so much more than we ever mm -hmm. used to. We weren't talking about these things as much in the past. And hopefully more financially sustainable models that mean that if people can't get into the housing market as owner occupiers, then the rental models shift. And there's mm -hmm. a lot of good research going mm -hmm. on in that area uh, or that we can we can tackle housing affordability through not just good you know design but through good economics good good financial mm -hmm. policy mm -hmm. and and yep. um housing provision policy so yeah i, I think slow-ish change not massive change but hopefully positive change that was damien madigan from madigan architects based in adelaide some cities develop so much that they seem like they're never finished, while other cities develop so little that they feel like they're stuck in the past. Dick Jarman talks through some of the changes that will happen in cities that haven't had much development and how changing transport infrastructure will impact new buildings. I think the built landscape in 2050 will look remarkably like it does now. It's not that far away. I think London's going to change a lot. I've been to town planning offices there and there are so many tall buildings that that's going to transform the skyline because it has been held back for so long and it's finally been let go. And it's not going to be the bell graph of Houston or other sort of western cities. It's because of its placement of various building types near uh, the tall buildings near the transport hubs. It's going to be quite higgledy-piggledy. That combined with not having a tabula rasa grid roadwork and every site being treated differently and doesn't have regular setbacks and other things. It's it's going to be like a chessboard with a whole lot of pieces from different sets on it. Whereas uh, I think other cities which have stronger town planning guidelines have a more, not a homogeneity, but maybe a potential of a greater harmony within that. But that's what London is. London is a, it's a palimpsest or a, a juxtaposition of, of buildings, not a, a composition. And I think when we look at other cities, and I'm now living in Hobart, it also has been lucky in a way of being held back from development for a long time. So it still has a, a, a very large amount of good historical buildings in uh, relatively intact in order, which 
hopefully won't suffer the demise that other cities have, where they've, through the 60s and 70s, just um, demolished them all. And I think we have a, both people in power of, of who make decisions, but also a community like Hobart Not High Rise and others who are really keen not to see what Hobart has lost. So I, I would really like to think that it doesn't change too much. I think there's, when I look around though, there's a lot of opportunity. There is a lot of used car yards and other things in Hobart, which is really dead space, which could really be developed to make, make the city a better place. And yeah. it doesn't mean that it doesn't have to be tall, but I think they, should be, they shouldn't be single storey either. I think an appropriate height is, and density is appropriate for, you know, it is a capital city in, in this nation. And then, of course, Mac One, Mac One sorry, Mac Point is probably the, the one of the largest inner city sites left in Australia, certainly in a capital city. Is that that will, if and when it happens, will shift the gravitational centre of Hobart towards that direction, just as Federation Square did, and gave the community in in Melbourne finally a square that worked and a place to to claim their own. I think there's there's a lot of potential that. Uh, Mac Point, which would, would change. When we look again in England, there's studies that show that by 2050, 80% of the housing stock already exists. But of course, they have row housing. It's very difficult to demolish anything there. But in Australia, it's a bit different because we have this blight of individual houses. It's very easy to demolish those houses without changing the streetscape. But I would like to think that we're much smarter in building denser than we have before and making the most of our infrastructure and building better infrastructure and, and better quality communities through this. I think one of the significant ones that people forget about is, in, in coming is car parks. If the promise of AI driven cars is true, and I think it is, it will change car ownership because why would you drive when you can have a vehicle come and turn up and pick you up and take you somewhere for a very small amount of money. We're not paying the driver, it's electric, so there's only a couple of moving parts. So these cars, current taxi will drive a million kilometers. These ones will drive six, seven million kilometers. So maintenance costs are slashed, the fuel costs are slashed, you're not paying for someone to drive it. And to drive your own, the insurance companies will say, look, you know, you're the risk factor because you make a human error, you're tired, you drink. So with that in mind, that approaching loss of ca private car ownership, yes, people still own their private cars because we're addicted to them but it will change and I think they will be forced out by reason you know financial reasons that we don't yet understand but what that means is a huge amount of space that's actually taken up by cars at the moment will not be required so car parking in the city along each side of the road will that be required can that be returned to be a nature strip can that be returned to be I don't know affordable housing do we need the freeways if everything can drive in a train like do we need it to be six lanes can we reduce it back to two this is the greatest space that's it's up for grabs and of course on the flip side it's one of the biggest losses of income for councillors who rely on car parking funds to fund you know to fund their shortfall so that's going to go because why would you put two dollars an hour in a a meter when you can just tell your car to circle the block and then you finish your shopping. These are the things which we should be thinking as city designers and infrastructure designers and uh, I think there's, a, there's been limited thought on it at the moment because it's a disruptive technology and like mobile phones it's getting here faster than people are planning for. That was Dick Jarman from Circa Morris Nunn Architects based in Hobart. It's difficult to see the impact that our homes make on the environment. What we do know is lots of big inefficient homes won't help the situation. 
In regional areas, the disadvantages of these homes is even harder to understand. Jo Rees tells us about her hopes for the future of Australian cities and how there could be a greater connection to water collection and recycling. I imagine in Australia, which probably is vastly different to places like China, which are already full of multi-storey buildings, but I imagine in Australia we will, because we have space, go to smaller density housing and commercial buildings. That's what I hope and that's what I'd like to see. I guess it would be nice to see an end to urban sprawl that covers the hillside with little boxes that all look the same. It would be nice to see towns and cities that look like gardens. So a greater return to public spaces which are green and open. That's what I hope for. Um, I also hope that technology will present opportunities that we can measure good design and effective design more efficiently than the way that we do it. And maybe that will help architects and it will help us into the future make places that are greener and, and give more back to the planet than they take. I also have this really crazy far-flung vision that's not really met with anybody's approval or likely to, but I would love to see between every backyard, every suburban backyard, whether it's um, you know medium density, living with shop houses or whatever, but I would like to see a corridor for water so that we would not only be collecting energy by passive means, solar or wind, whatever we can get hold of, but also that we would recycle all of our water in on our site. And so all of our consumption domestically, which I think is the greatest opportunity, and particularly if there's medium density, so we would recycle it and we would also put it into a community shared waterway that would also have community gardens. So it would mean the individual garden would be slightly reduced, but there would be a communal space where you could grow veggies or, and have paths and walkways. And then the water that the individual property doesn't need then gets passed on to other properties. So instead of flushing it all out to the ocean and wrecking our oceans, we're reusing it. That's my hope. You know, like in, in our situation, the top end, we have this huge deluge of rain in the wet season. We can't possibly use all of it, but we can store some of it and then make it re-available. But it's not possible to store all of it. We can store some of it. Yeah, so, and then other places, they just don't have enough water. So they would need more efficient ways of storing and using water than, than what we would here. Yes, I agree. Public open spaces have the most to offer and I would just love to see roads halved and turned into cycle paths with parks. That would be another part of this. Yeah, so that relies on public transport. It relies on public transport that interacts with other modes of transport like cycling, and making it possible to get around without having to jump in a car or, you know, if there is the need to use a car, that it's more efficient and the roadways are more efficient. That was Joe Rees from Ajara Architects based in the Northern Territory. Architecture is only one part of our community's future. It ties into the bigger plan for where our cities are going. As governments and planners create initiatives to meet the demands of the growing population, architects respond to design for those needs. 
Population growth has been the defining factor for the increase in large-scale development. But with climate change effects getting stronger every year, if building design doesn't respond to the predicted impacts, the buildings that are being constructed today might not be able to cope with future conditions. Peter Stutchbury tells us how our cities might look if buildings continue to be built without consideration for the environment. Eventually there'll be a huge backlash towards the high-rise. High-rise residential, not high-rise office, but high-rise residential because I think it takes the human out of human, it takes the human out of living, it takes the spirit out of human, you know, it, it's just a convenient way of living. And at, at some point in time that convenience becomes mundane, so you're not learning any more from it, you're just doing it as a mundane activity. There's no change involved. You know. So I think, I mean, how many friendships have been made in a lift? You know, or a foyer, you know, as opposed to a park or as opposed to a you know, lunch room or whatever. So I think there's, there's going to be big question marks about that form of living, that sort of density form of living. I also think that, that, that people will ultimately go back to a smaller, denser type of house, um, sensibly so. So there'll be like, in terms of infrastructure and that, there'll be like more densification using existing infrastructure. I think that, um, that these big road projects, of course, will become redundant because I don't think we'll have big cars anymore. I think that the whole transport system needs to be revised and that we're, yes, we're catching up with Europe, but Europe now are reassessing what they're doing, you know, like it's, we're not good at predicting the future. I mean, what we should be doing is minimising the use of the car. So putting the car somewhere and getting trains everywhere or buses or not trains really. Our, our network system should be much more efficient because we can manage the energy that charges that network in a lot better way. I think that we could potentially see mini power stations all around the place rather than big ones. So you have a lot of mini power stations like London does. I think that water will be an issue, so I think there'll be a lot more collection of water and, and management of water within your own block. I think there'll be rules and regulations where you actually have to manage your own water and collect it and hold it and drink it and use it, you know, and you'll be penalised for using community water. I think that there'll be much more social responsibility in terms of poorer people. I think that, you know, and I think that they'll become poor housing places, like housing for poor, you know, like housing estates. There'll be a level of that. And I, and I think that that will happen because the houses were designed and built, the builders' houses are only designed to last 30 years. I mean, we just saw infrastructure in Darling, Darling Harbour worth hundreds of millions of dollars torn down and replaced, and it was 30 years old, including one of Cox's good buildings you know, that should have been readapted, including the stadium, which he did, which was a great stadium. I love that stadium. My father built it, you know, he designed it, Coxie. And, you know, instead of modifying it, the, the government thinks it's smarter to build a new stadium. And I guarantee that new stadium is lasting in the last 30 years. So there'll be that whole, you know, there'll be all these dead buildings around buildings that no longer even exist and now there's not the energy or the money to make them exist. I think that 
the, the energy to power air conditioning and lighting in these big buildings will you know be questioned. I think big buildings will have to have power stations on the top of them. They'll have to collect water and they'll have to have power. You know, they'll use solar and they'll use that wind and all that sort of stuff. And so we'll get cities that are thumping away that should have been thought about now, not in 20 years' time. So I think there's a lot of things, you know, and I don't, I don't see our city as having really sensible infrastructure to manage it. I think that we're, we're just followers. And I said this at the TEDx talk, I showed a group of sheep and I said, we're just like that. We just follow the leader. We don't think for ourselves. You know, this is a very different place. It's a semi-arid continent. There's no water, zero water. We just had two million fish die in the Darling River because the Murray-Darling Authority took all the water out of the river. Fuck, how stupid is that? And you know what they've got down that river? Cotton farms, the second highest farm for requiring water behind rice in the world. Semi-arid desert cotton farms so you know zoom i think that i think that we're in for a big shock actually then i think climate change is incredibly real and i think sea levels will rise and i think there'll be a whole issue there you know and i think change is on its way and and change has been on its way for millions of years the world went through an ice age you know sea levels came up you know the the coast moved 16 kilometers or 10 kilometers, 16,000 years ago. I mean, we are in constant change. And now that we've put all this additional heat into the atmosphere, we're gonna melt the ice and we're gonna have like hot beds. If you're smart, you're going by land in Tasmania. You would, because you know, you're at least not gonna be overheated there. So, you know, we're, we're in a, and like no one is seeing the damage that's happening in the water like all the kelp down the east coast of Australia, 80% is gone, you know, like fish, we're just flogging the fish population. The whole sort of microstructure of fish is gone, that, that, that level of school fish has all been destroyed, you know. The fish are eating weeds that come out of the sewerage outlet, the sewerage outlet has antidepressants from the people pissing in the water, and the fish are all going crazy, they're not in schools anymore, so they're being eaten. I mean, we need to take a step back, and we need to have some seriously good environmental management that get us like thinking and that this is mainly applies to buildings you know we switch on a switch and the light comes on and we go cool India you don't do that Iran you don't do that you switch a switch on it might come on if you're lucky but we haven't experienced that and and the house I've just done for our own family is completely self-sustainable we collect our own water, 50,000 50, litres. We, we've got, we're off the grid, you know, we've got solar, yeah, solar panels on the wall for heating the water. We've got veggie patch, organic veggie patch, an organic orchard, chooks, you know. I mean, we could survive quite easily in a holocaust. We could get by our little patch. And that's how we live. Because I think every person should in some way live like that community garden or whatever, you know, our responsibility. If you think of Cuba, when the Americans, you know, banned it from trading and all that sort of stuff, all they did was they made a community garden for every suburb. And so you didn't need to go to the supermarket anymore. You went to the community garden, you all shared the garden and it's, it worked, you know. Now they're putting hotels on the community gardens because it's now open for tourism. 
because money's more attractive, rah, rah, rah. They did have people in, in their own house, but now they've got money, they're putting it, whole thing changes, community garden's gone. We've just been in Slovenia, huge community gardens in Slovenia, because Slovenia went through poverty, Yugoslavia. You know, all those wars and sort of, you know, they were like they couldn't get trading. So they did, and the community gardens are still there. And you know who's working them? The, the poor people from Bosnia who've come over and like said, they've got no money. Okay, you can have the garden. Just give me some food. My friends, you know, you have that big patch of garden. You can farm the garden. You can support yourselves. Just give us a bit of food and they do. So, you know, like, there's going to be that side of things and then there's going to be the big money earners, the big money makers who own the water resources and all that, who are just going to sort of do what they want. Zero responsibility. Social responsibility, you know. What a shame. That was Peter Stutchbury from Peter Stutchbury Architecture, based in Sydney. Architects have great proposals refused all the time, so they know what opportunities have been missed. It's therefore easy to understand that some architects might make dark predictions about the future. But Yvette Breitenbach talks us through her thoughts on a positive future where all buildings respond to nature. A great question, and I found myself visioning, and my visions actually moved from apocalyptic, visions, cities of kind of destroyed buildings and we've seen that scenario in quite a number of sci-fi movies I suppose. But my vision moved from that to cities that, that do respond to climate change where the forms and the nature of the buildings are determined by climatic conditions. I thought about how we will need to design buildings and elements within the landscape that are able to filter air, catch and hold and potentially redirect rain, how they will, and they and there are many that already do, harness the sun and the wind. Of course we have to design so that our buildings reduce energy consumption both uh, in their running and also in the materials that we use, reduce waste, Mm. reduce emissions and actually both the building forms but as well as the landscape forms, catchments, ponds or, or shade devices or wind deflectors, um, could actually result in our cities becoming really sculptural and wonderful. I don't think they will necessarily be high, high rise because I think that nature is much stronger than anything we can build. And we might find that contrary to the trend upwards, that we actually need to build more cleverly and maybe even underground. Who knows? That was Yvette Breitenbach from Morrison and Breitenbach Architects, based in Hobart. Australia's urban areas are relatively new to this country. They're dominated by European influences and rarely showcase the history of the first Australians. Jeeva Greenaway shares his vision for a future Australia, where the design of our places and spaces illustrate a connection to our country's history and diversity. 
How we think about the future in architecture is something which will really shape our profession and our enduring role that we have within the community. And it is a, a critical responsibility. But sort of extending the thinking around how we want to sort of change our places and spaces and, and the role that architects have within that. You know, I have a vision of seeing in time a true embrace of our rich diversity. Imagine a time where we walk through our cities and we see dual language, where we acknowledge the places in which we're located, we talk to our deep history and memory of place, we reveal the layers of history and memory and we talk to cultural expression in different ways. Our places become magnets for tourism which have that authentic experience connected to country. That we demonstrate that we don't need to have this cultural cringe of showcasing who we are and understanding that we have a distinct opportunity here to really celebrate our, our opportunities of connecting to the the richness, the diversity of the different environments and cultures and cities and centres that you know, talk to this vast continent of ours. And I see an opportunity of using all the skills and technologies and capacities to ensure that we have environments which respond to the needs of people. We're dealing with vast changes around climate change vast changes in terms of dealing with the heat resilience of buildings, enabling us to have the, the places of respite and contemplation, the urban forest being brought into our cities and certainly needs to amplify and, and increase. We really need to find places which enable us and to reinforce our relationship to each other. And architecture can play a role here, you know, and it's really I think a case of starting to move beyond the silos as well and I think we tend to focus on architecture through a, a very narrow prism and from my perspective we have a role in the interior space, we have a role in the landscape, we have a role in the urban design, we have a role in the architecture and the built form itself but there is I think starting to emerge an idea of a sort of convergence and a relationship and a better connected interdisciplinary approach to design practice and this is something which we can certainly really facilitate and for me I'd certainly like to see many more First Nations people being involved within the design profession. I certainly want to see our diversity reflected through our profession. I certainly feel that we need to take our responsibility much more seriously in terms of the finite resources that we have. So from an ethical standpoint these are the ambitions and aspirations that I have for the future and we can certainly play a pivotal role. We certainly need to be much more political. You know, you see an organisation like the AMA tackling government, calling them to account, challenging some of their assumptions and saying, well, as a peak design body, as a profession united, we can start to showcase our role and our value, we can certainly become the champions for change, we can certainly start to advocate for better policy parameters, we can certainly say well we can't put our heads in the sand around climate change and issues around biodiversity and you know, the amount of land clearing that's occurring for development, we have to be much more robust in our responses, we need to be much more sophisticated in our use of technology. I think certainly we 
needn't necessarily just absorb the vested interests and lobby groups who sort of saying to do things in a particular way. If it doesn't meet our, our needs, if it is actually starting to disrupt where it's impacting on the livability of our cities, we certainly should be challenging some of those major companies which are starting to impact on the way in which we live. And, and I think as architects, we need to demonstrate through design thinking and through our skills and capacities that we can actually do things better. And we certainly need to be much more active in that space. And when we start to work together as a model of collaboration and foregrounding the needs of our communities, we can certainly have that authenticity to provide a, a pivotal role in terms of what we do. And we have to start to think a little bit more innovatively. I think we need to be much more agile. But I have certainly paused for optimism because the, the young guns coming through our universities, which I see every day, are the future. They are very active. They're, they're very considered. They're, they understand their responsibilities. They understand some of the limitations of the generations that have come before in terms of what we've done. And certainly they're wanting to ameliorate some of those risks. And certainly you know, I'm very positive around the future of architecture as being certainly an enabler to improve our communities. That was Chief of Greenaway from Greenaway Architects based in Melbourne. When architects used to start firms, they often worked in isolation. Now, there are so many communities for young and emerging practices to join that the culture around new practice is really supportive. Rob McGoran shares why he's optimistic about the future of architecture and how young architects are engaging with each other and the community. I'm excited for the future for, for architects for a number of reasons. I see a community, and particularly a younger community, that's recognising that to have a great future relies on them acting with purpose and through collective rather than individual stardom, if you like. You know, that this is the challenges facing us uh, with the planet but also the challenges of future work, et cetera, are necessarily more collaborative in their solutions and interdisciplinary. And that in turn requires us to have a discussion at a much richer level. You know, the fact that Melbourne's going to have 40% of it made in the next 25 years. If I was starting in architecture now, what a great prospect. Why wouldn't I want to be part of that story in a much deeper way than waiting for a phone call to just put up another edifice? Why wouldn't I want to be really exploring with others what is the DNA that's going to make this resilient, impactful, you know, special to us, resonating with us, uh, enhancing our futures, uh, giving us high quality homes in which to live and communities to be part of and I'm very um, hopeful that having and harnessing the data that is becoming available and the appetite that people have to be part of the discussion that architects can be the design choreographers 
in a more ben benevolent and inclusive way in the way that they realise uh, work, but in a way that's also valued by communities if the, those communities can see these architects really wanting to understand the people, the neighbourhoods and the challenges and respond to those rather than the latest Instagram feed. That was Rob McGoran from MGS Architects based in Melbourne. It's easy to feel left out of a community. Without being involved, there's a chance that initiatives will take place that you don't agree with. Some of these might even impact us directly. Being involved in a community is important. By being involved, we're able to contribute to initiatives that we're passionate about. The bigger the community, the bigger the voice. Jane Court, Nicholas Braun, Timothy Moore and Amelia Borg outline how they would like architects to engage with the community and how future neighbourhoods could adapt to renewable services. Looking at the recent UN report on climate change, I think everyone has to agree that we need to take action in whatever our profession is. And I guess I'm just really looking forward to having those conversations with clients around how the spaces that they inhabit can be changed to allow for a much less carbon footprint lifestyle. Just sort of following on from Jane, I guess building typologies that we'd like to not see anymore into the future might be like coal, power plants and other energy sources that are detrimental to the environment and the inclusion of more renewable power sources. And I guess cities that I guess hopefully we can learn from the mistakes that we've made and that the, the cities that we begin to create are much more thoughtful and yet sensitive towards the next generation. Luckily, the, the city of the future is already here. It's around us and there's plenty of precedents or examples around Australia and around the world that show this potential future, uh, whether it be through trading solar power with your neighbours like you would trade tomatoes over the mm. fence with Power Ledger in Perth. Um, to lots of examples in Melbourne of collective housing, to zero waste. The City of Melbourne have examples of this. So I think the biggest challenge for architects is to ignite people's desires towards this future and look at the existing projects that already exist and amplify them at a metropolitan scale. Yeah, I think in terms of, as a practice, the issues that we think are important and that we try and kind of tackle and engage with, the two things that I think keep coming back in our minds and the things that we kind of continually think about are how technology will affect public space and every day when I'm catching the train into work I just become like more and more worried about the nature of the way that we're going to interact with each other in physical space and I think that's something that's changing so rapidly and something that we have thought about a lot as a practice and I guess the other thing is thinking about the ageing population and the fact that we need to really think about different ways and modes of addressing that issue and it's currently in the news a lot and it's an issue that I think everyone agrees needs to be addressed and looked at head on. That was Jane Court, Nicholas Braun, Timothy Moore and Amelia Borg from Sibling Architects based in Melbourne. Predicting the future in film is often inaccurate. It's hard to tell what things will change over time or remain undeveloped. For architects, proposing changes to design elements that have fundamental problems is a big part of planning for the future. 
Professor Philip Tallis outlines how visions of the future have often missed the mark and utopian plans of our future cities will achieve a mix of results. The traditions of the modern movement had a very difficult relationship to the future. Uh, you can go back to the 1920s and look at the films of Fritz Lang and um, back to 1915 and look at the futurists. You can look at the, the projections of the modern movement, Le Corbusier and Hilbersheimer, for example. You can look at what Colin Rowe called architecture science fiction of the 1960s, um, Archigram and the like, which was sort of a very cute diversion. You can look at Super Studio. Um, what disappoints me uh, in our period is that, in a sense, architects are very happy to regurgitate the false utopias of the 1960s. And I think that we need to have a much greater sense of realism. And there's been this tendency to over-romanticise in a fairly infantile way the future. The future will be gritty and full of social conflict just like the past has been, just like the present has been. If you look, you know, projecting forward to 2050, well, a good thing is simply to project back 30 years but to 1990. What was so different? What's, what's different now is the hyperdensity uh, relative to what was considered the norm at that time. And one of the, the big things has, of course, been the incredible development in Asia, Asian cities, India and China and Southeast Asia, where, in a sense, in a generation, they've compressed um, the experience of European cities through the Industrial Revolution. So what took 80 years in Berlin, you've had done in a decade in Chinese cities at even bigger scale. So whether it's infrastructure, whether it's density, whether it's manufacturing jobs, whether it's the, the rural poor moving to these new cities, the rate of change is very dramatic and the urban forms, which is sort of supercharged, in a sense, it's um, realising some of the uh, dreams of, um, say, Le Corbusier or um, Hilbersheimer, more so than Archigram. So certainly computers are letting us have more phantasmagorical forms. Whether they're uh, underpinned by good sense is an open question. Whether they're simply novelty for its own sake and look at me architecture, I think that's, that's a big issue. But I don't think there's... there's the future is going to be all that different to the past. And one of my favourite uh, architects is Aldo van Eyck, who led Team 10, which was a critique of orthodox uh, modernism in the 1950s. And he said, architects are continually harping on about what's different today or in the future. And he said, what's not different is the condition of humankind. And I think that sort of gritty realism is an essential antidote to, to fantasy and delusion. And I think that, you know, you'll walk around streets and parks and squares, maybe with more people in them in, in 30 years' time or 50 years' time. But I think, for instance, the street won't, won't lose its relevance. We might have different forms of streets. And it's interesting to focus on the street because I, I bring that up commonly and we've designed many streets which is rare for an architectural practice, but we also urban practice. But when you think of streets, streets are actually... You struggle to think of a single city in history, in any culture, on any continent, that isn't based on streets. Yet, since um, the attacks of the modern movement, streets have been something that, that doesn't get 
talked about by architects. I can't get a planner to even say the word street. They say road. When you talk to people, they think that streets are about cars. Well, streets existed millennia before cars and streets will exist millennia after cars, whatever the next form of um, technology is. So think also about what's enduring. And one of the, the, the things about architecture and particularly cities is that they're the most enduring things that humans do. And so they last and they're occupied, they're in use. They're not abstract ideas, they're actually physical places in use. So I think that that condition will be the dominant condition, whether you want to pick 2050, 2100 or whatever. The social condition of the city will be our social condition. The environmental challenges and lots of cities through history have failed through environmental challenges already. We'll have increasing cities failing through their environmental challenges because of our pathetic response to climate change. And remember the climate change is a problem for food production, for environment, for ecosystems absolutely fundamentally a problem for cities because they're fixed assets. So the last ice age 12,000 years ago there weren't cities. Humans could adapt reasonably easily, there weren't very many of them. Now there are lots of them and they're in these fixed places of cities and so that's going to be the huge threat into the future. That was Professor Philip Tallis from Hill Tallis Architecture and Urban Design based in Sydney. Believe it or not, Architecture isn't just meant to look good, it's meant to work well. There are definitely some architects who think that architecture should look interesting, but there is a growing group of architects who want to excite people by how well a building can function. Andrew Maynard shares why he thinks efficient architecture will become more common as architects embrace old ideas that work and building technology gets better. The future's pretty bright, like, and I think it's really easy to achieve as well. Where we're lucky, I think, is that there's a generation of designers and architects coming through that realise that there's a lot of great ideas that already exist and they have existed for a long time and we get to pick and choose from them. So I like the idea that there's a bunch of people that are going, we can be custodians for well-worn ideas and just do them efficiently and better. We don't need to all be Frank Geary's and designing these wobbly sculptures. Like how much, how useful are those things? You know, they're just you know, future trash is one thing I always think of. They're the kind of stage set for a real dystopic future. That's, that's where everybody, you know, cage fights and some warlord. But, uh, you know, I think that we see great ways to live. You know, we're, we're a species that is 250,000 years old, that's lived in urban setting for a very short amount of time, so we're getting used to it. But we're seeing, we reflect and see what does work and what doesn't work. And five or six storey buildings that are well connected to a street level where you have community engagement uh, and invest in sort of local culture and community, they're always going to work really well for the human animal. We, we're looking at a future where transport's going to change, so we get cars out of the way, we'll be able to hand them back over to being public spaces. So these ideas already exist and the technology's coming that'll actually allow us to do it without sort of pissing off the voter that loves paying, you know, loves voting for more road infrastructure. Because hopefully we'll be sort of liberated people just dialing an automated Uber to take them wherever they need to go. In terms of materials and things like that, I love the idea that, that we've moved beyond all this experimentation in different petrochemical things. You know, there's just all these you know, you get these books that are all about new ways of, of building and they're all different variations of 
oil. Um, where now we see in Australia this great investment in CLT. Um, so the idea that we could have automated ways of construction but we can use well-worn, sustainable materials, that's the kind of future we're looking at. And it's all here. It's all uh, about to happen. And we don't need to be mad inventors. I'm all for inventing innovation, but in terms of a sustainable future, we've got the right ingredients. We just have to implement them and just have to turn the selfishness and the capitalism down from 11. Like, I don't want to burn down the system. I think the system's fine. We just have to sort of balance the, the greed with a bit of need. You know? That was Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects, based in Melbourne. Despite Australia's geographical isolation, we're now more connected to the rest of the world than we ever have been. This has helped us be more aware of the great buildings being built overseas, as well as the architects who design them. Joe Aegeus tells us how the design landscape will change so buildings are adaptable and Australia fits into the global landscape. Buildings generally into the future, and we're already seeing this certainly in the last 10 years, buildings are being designed to be more flexible and to be adaptable and changeable over time so they're resilient. Uh, to the extent that clearly form doesn't follow function but a, a building may be sort of conceptually perceived as a vessel that can take on a number of different uses and so that ov- obviously involves things like the spacing of columns and getting the floor to floor right enabling the building services to change over time etc all, all of those issues I think are going to become more important into the future as opposed to tightly designing a building to a particular and initial first use. In terms of who will design our cities, I think our Australian cities are becoming increasingly globalised, particularly Melbourne and Sydney, and to that extent the architects that operate in them will be increasingly globalised. So I do think we're going to see or continue to see international architects work here. We're going to see more international practices established here. Obviously they will employ Australian architects. At the same time we're seeing Australian architects work more and more overseas. So we are in a global economy and to that extent you know our profession and our cities will be impacted by that and again that's not a negative thing. Um, It's got positives and negatives um, and we need to just work with it in my view. Um, In terms of building materials, on on the material front I suspect we're going back to the future in that we're going to see building materials that are more environmentally conscious about their manufacture um, origin and their process of manufacture and the amount of embodied energy involved in their making. Obviously that includes consideration of chemicals and toxins etc that may be embedded in materials. To a large extent that's going to involve thinking of natural materials in new ways and as I said sort of just the importance of the carbon footprint in a material and in a building I think will become more and more uh, acute. I mean there's a whole range of new materials that are emerging be it aluminium bubble wrap or titanium foam or graphene aerogel or artificial spider silk etc. These are all kind of materials that are on the cutting edge that I think 
possibly over the next 20 to 30 years will impact the construction industry uh, and be opportunities for architects to extend their creativity. I think with all of them, there's also the issue of in artificial in intelligence within the material. So being able to monitor how a building behaves, how it operates, etc., um, is something that I think you know will be a key issue across a whole range of materials in the future as well. That was Joe Ageas from Cox Architects based in Sydney. There are so many areas of building and construction that architects are trying to improve. Even the designs that try to improve one thing can be a major win for the building industry if it's effective. This is because architecture is one of the main testing grounds for building solutions in the construction industry. It's when architects do nothing to make buildings or our communities better that people start to think we're heading into the worst case scenario for urban outcomes. Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood from POD based in Cairns discuss some of the many initiatives that we need to consider now as we plan for the future and the differences between urban areas and regional Australia. I think we're at a real crossroads in this time and age and it, it ties in with conversations about climate change and, and what are we doing to, to change. Um, there's more an awareness of, of social sustainability now as well as environmental sustainability. What will the future built environment look like in 2050? That's only 30 years away. Things don't shift that rapidly in that space of time. Uh, I think we're going to start to see some of the effects of sea level rise for a start. I certainly hope that there is a future where people have more of an awareness and an education about the environments that they're living in and use their voices to, to bring about change. I don't think things will be a lot different in, in 30 years from now, but hopefully we'll start to see some more focus or more built examples of social sustainable communities. I think that there could be multiple versions of our future. I just went and saw that movie 2040 on the weekend, which was pretty interesting because it presents a possible positive future versus a, a future of destruction, which I think in 30 years is also possible. So I think what's going to change? Buildings and cities have to be a lot more resilient. They have to be resilient in their infrastructure, in their master planning. In their architecture, they have to be made of tougher materials that are easier to fix and rebuild post-disaster. They have to be made of sustainable materials that are recycled and not petroleum-based. They have to really, if we're going to be able to survive on planet Earth going forward, then we have to have a pretty dramatic shift in how we manage our cities and build our cities and what they look like from a transport perspective and a built perspective. So as population grows and cities become denser and denser and parts of them uh, become renewed and parts of them decay, the role of public open space is going to become more and more important, particularly in uh, shifting climate, increasing temperatures, higher sea levels and so on. It's going to be those the, the quality of those public open spaces that holds communities together, I think. Yeah, and I think things that will be potentially defunct that we know are already on the way out are things like, you know, drive-ins and drive-throughs unless a massive um, influx of driverless cars comes through. Shopping centres as they existed or existed in the 80s and 90s because of the, you know, increase in online shopping or what shopping centres actually are, which, you know, are now about 
retail consumption, which is being done in multiple platforms and multiple places, not only in shopping centres. I also am of the opinion of single-use large office buildings will probably decrease and what will increase is multi-use kind of spaces which combined commercial and retail and living space, you know, um, social support systems and services so that there's more integrated uses within cities and that there's less siloism and compartmentalisation. Yeah, and, and less centralisation too. I mean, we certainly feel it as a, a regional area kind of at the end of the line in far north Queensland. Uh, when disaster hits, natural disaster, our highway gets cut off uh, for several days uh, and the the supermarkets become empty. It's It becomes really quite evident here that we need more focus on, on local production, local resilience, because when things go that way when the highway gets cut you can't rely on um, the stuff you need from other places to come here so um, transportation so we so we need local sustainability um, local access to our own resources and food and services sorry one of the topics in this question is what's the role of the internet in the design of our buildings one of the problems with the internet I think is that that we see quite regularly this is slightly separate to what we were talking about before, is that the internet makes people think that anything is possible anywhere in the world, which is not always true. So we often get clients coming into the office with a picture of something off the internet that they've seen in Germany or South America, that they say, well, can we have this piece of technology here in Cairns? And sometimes it's possible for us to achieve and sometimes it just doesn't exist in our market and location. And I think this is one of the issues with the falsehoods of the internet is that people think that globalisation is available everywhere equally and equitably and it isn't. And so there has to be a redirection of people's interests back into local and regional and what is available and what is here you know, and what's able to be used sustainably as a resource. Yeah, I agree with all that. But I also think there's positives. I think the fact that people get on the internet and look at what's happening all around the world uh, expands people's notions of what is possible and what's happening in other places. We do things differently these days too. We did 20, 30 years ago, and it's because the world is at our fingertips. It's all available on the internet. You've just got to have the time and the interest to go surfing and and you you can find out just about anything you want. And I think that's a marvellous thing. People are are far better informed these days. And yeah, look, we know architecture is complex and people might come to you with something which you know is a little bit whiskery, but you've just got to be able to have that conversation, say, well, yes, what is it that you like about that and how can we achieve that same sort of outcome here, but you're not going to get that exact representation of what it is you're looking at. So here's a question for you, Belinda, and I'll answer the same question myself. In 2050, you know, I'll be hopefully well and truly retired by then. How do you think you'd like to be living in 2050 in an ideal situation? I'll tell you how I think I'd like to be living. I was talking about this with my kids the other night, who are will be laden with me as a result of, you know, not being able to afford um, s- sufficient institutionalised aged care, which I would hate to have anyway. I would like to be living in a very tiny house, perhaps not a tiny, tiny house, but in the least house necessary, 
in a rural environment, potentially on the farm I live in now or on another which is in a cooler location, perhaps on the Atherton Tablelands and has less immediate effects of climate change. But in a microgrid that is self-sustainable with other small houses for my children and grandchildren in a clustered community with a community garden so that we can all produce our own food, have our own microgrid, but also be quite close, perhaps half an hour or less by some form of share ride transport or other public transport to education and health services. But I would expect the health services, because I'll be you know, well and truly in my um, 70s by then, to come to me and provide local support services along with my extended family, rather than me going to be in an aged care facility somewhere else. So that's, that's the future I would like as a nearly 80-year-old to be sitting amongst. Certainly not alone with some form of dementia in an aged care facility where there is no guarantee on the um, support that I would be receiving. That's a beautiful picture. <laughs> um, look, I've, I've got to agree with that, but uh, the things I picked up from that is um, being in a... Um, a sustainable community if it is semi-rural or uh, regional absolutely yeah I think that's where I'd like to be also but the the thing that gives you is that connection to the outdoors to the natural landscape highly dense city areas are great and can be fine they can bring a lot of stressors as well so those sorts of environments do need to have a, a good balance of well-designed public space that um, is activated and used and safe because they are active. I really do think the key to the, the future regionally is having resilient, sustainable, self-contained regions and, and sub-regions, satellite centres and yes, the, the connectivity to uh, to larger areas so that public transportation I think that's uh, for me that's where it's at this has been episode 12 and the final episode of season one of hearing architecture we've got so many people that we'd like to thank We'd like to thank everyone who listened to the first season of the podcast. We didn't know what kind of response we were going to get, and it was even better than what we had anticipated. Uh, we'd also like to thank all of you who listened and gave us ratings and reviews because it really helped people find the podcast. We'd also like to thank everyone who promoted us on social media. It was surprising to see people engage with us um, after all the hard work everyone put into the organising, writing, recording and producing of the podcast. Um, we'd, we'd also like to thank everyone who wrote to us through Instagram about what you think of the podcast. All of your feedback has been really helpful and by engaging with us in some way, it helps you get what you'd like from initiatives that the Australian Institute of Architects puts together. So please keep letting us know what you think. If it was just me talking, it'd be a pretty boring podcast. So I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of our amazing guests from all around Australia. 
They've all contributed so much to the conversation about architecture and we can't wait to have them back in future episodes. The guests in Season 1 were Joe Aegeus, Lee Hillam, Peter Stutchbury, Professor Philip Tallis, Rod Simpson, Joe Rees, Sue Dugdale, Shanine Fanton, Belinda Allwood, Damien Madigan, Dick Jarman, Hugh Maguire, Yvette Breitenbach, Andrew Maynard, Jeeva Greenaway, Rob McGoran, Peter Elliott, Amelia Borg, Nicholas Braun, Jane Court, Timothy Moore, Justin Carrier, Stephen Posmus, Jane Weatherall, Kylie Shunans, Emily Van Eyck and Jessica Mountain. I also had an amazing team of people behind me helping me out and the interviews in this season were coordinated, recorded and produced around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Vols, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueenie, Reese Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster and Daniel Moore. We had amazing support from the Australian Institute of Architects production team, which was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodward and Tom McKenzie. Without their belief in this project, it would never have happened. The podcast was produced by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. And it was written and directed by me, Daniel Moore. Thanks so much for listening once again, and we look forward to bringing you even more great content with Season 2 of Hearing Architecture. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.